God, our Father, we thank you for your grace, your transforming grace, your transforming work in our lives. We thank you for this passage of Scripture that shows us a man who was so horribly marred by the effect of the fall, yet, Lord, you radically transformed him into one who is able to function as an image bearer of God. And that's what you promised to do in the life of every sinner, even us. And so, Lord, open this scripture to us. Give us the boldness as we have prayed and as we have sung to speak of your grace and your mercy often to tell others of the mercy that you have wrought in our lives. Bless us as we hear your word. Bless the one who preaches. Make him faithful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would turn to Mark chapter 5, we'll be reading 20 verses, first 20 verses. So let us now hear the word of God. They came to the, to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerizines, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described it to them, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Have you heard the popular quote, Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. This quote is 
often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, and he lived in A.D. 1181 to 1226. He founded the Franciscan Order. But the historical evidence shows that St. Francis never said that. There's a second problem with this quote, is that it sets up this dichotomy between deeds and words, between preaching the gospel verbally and preaching the gospel by deeds. And it is often suggested by those who use this quote wrongly, I might add, that the more faithful Christian is the one who preaches by deeds, lifestyle evangelism, rather than merely declaring the good news of the gospel. And yes, we should practice what we preach. Our deeds should be consistent with our words. But his lifestyle evangelism is preaching by deeds, living a more faithful Christian life over proclaiming the good news of the gospel verbally. Today's account in Mark chapter 5 clearly shows us that, yeah, we need to live consistent with the gospel. In a sense, that is preaching. But more, what did Jesus tell this man to do after he had been radically transformed? He said, go tell them all that I have done for you. We see here in this text one example among many in scriptures of the necessity of declaring verbally the good news of the gospel message. And we'll look at three realities today. The great misery of sinners in the estate of sin. The great mercy of Jesus that restores sinners. And the great mission that Jesus has sent his redeemed to fulfill. So first, this account that we just read shows the great need of sinners who are by nature born into the estate of sin and misery. About a year ago, the, the priceless, one of the priceless paintings by Vincent van Gogh entitled Sunflowers was on display at the London National Museum or Gallery. And a couple of environmentalist activists defaced this expensive, priceless painting by taking tomato soup and splashing it on the painting. And thankfully, the tomato soup damaged the frame, but did not damage this Van Gogh painting. And then these activists, I guess they used super glued and glued their hands to the wall next to the painting. I assume they wanted to make sure they got credit for throwing tomato soup on this Van Gogh. And those that were standing around in the gallery just, just gasped in amazement. How in the world could this have happened? And why would someone do it? And why would they glue their hands to the wall next to the painting that they defaced? But reading this passage in Mark, maybe you gasp in astonishment at just how incredibly this man's had been marred and affected by sin and Satan, just how greatly he had been defaced, how profound the catastrophic effects of the fall were evident in the horrible lifestyle that he lived. This, this demonized man, I want to suggest to you, represents state 
of every sinner that is in bondage to sin, that is in that estate, as our confession talks about, of sin and misery. We might ask the question, what has sin done? Just look at this man. And you'll be able to see the terrible thing that sin has done. We know sin totally depraved. We are born with that sin nature inherited with Adam. And the result of that is that mankind is incapable of functioning as God had originally intended man to function as his image bearers. That image of God, the Imago Dei, is present even in a man like this, but yet you can barely see it. It is so terribly defaced and marred by the effects of the fall. Anthony Hookema speaks of what kind of being man is structurally. He's in the image of God. God made him after his image. And Hookema also speaks of God with regards to what man does, how he functions, that originally man was not only created in the image of God, structurally in the image of God, but also with the ability, the capability to actually as God's image bearer. And the fall of man into sin did not affect the image of God. The, the structure is still there. But that ability to and destroy by sin. I'll borrow from J.C. Baker's uh, God and Man Sunday School class, his analogy of Hookema's structure and function by having us look at a car. If you were to go out and look at my car, my white Subaru Outback, you would look at it and you'd say, that's a car. And it's got a steering wheel, it's got wheels, and hopefully they're inflated. And it has, if you the hood, it would have an engine, you would have everything there, so that car be a car. But if the gas was not in the tank, if it was empty, it could not function as a car. Likewise, this demon, demonized man structurally was in the image of God, but functionally could not live or could not, did not have the ability to live as an image bearer. And the demon-possessed man really represents all mankind in the estate of sin, structurally in the image of God, functionally incapable of living as an image bearer because of being in bondage to sin, to death, and, <clears throat> excuse me, to uh, Satan. Let's look at this man's life, and let's see if we can, we can somehow discern that he is able to function as an image bearer of God. So this is, this is what verse 3 says, that he lived in isolation from society among the tombs, living among the dead. That doesn't sound like an image bearer of God to me. That doesn't sound like he's living, he's able to function as an image bearer, not living in community, not living in relationships, living isolated. And he, he also, in verses 3 and 4, he has superhuman strength so that no one could subdue him, no chain could bind him. That doesn't sound much like 
being able to function as an image bearer of God. God has called man to be a producer, to bless culture, to work, and to be able to help others. And this man, basically, because of his superhuman strength, caused fear in other people. People didn't want to be around him. They were scared of him. He was like the Frankenstein monster roaming around the countryside. Could have been tombs. Naked. Obviously, showing the shame. We know he was naked because I was surprised to find him clothed. And then 24-7, night and day, think of this. He was, he was crying out probably with a, with a hideous cry. And he was taking stones and cutting himself. Agony. And this shows the effect of demons possessing this man. They were not only trying to destroy the image of God in this man, they were trying to destroy the image bearer himself. The problem of the sinner is more than being the face with tomato soup that can easily be washed off with the right cleaner. The great need of every sinner is, is being in the estate of sin and misery, being in bondage like this man. Now, every sinner is, is possessed by a demon. I'm not suggesting that, but every sinner is in bondage like this man, unable to meet their greatest need, which is to be restored to, to that functionality as an image bearer of God. The only way for that functionality to be restored is for Jesus to show us mercy. And he shows us mercy by applying his atoning work, the shedding of his blood. Oh, no, it's not that we would throw red tomato soup. No, what we need is the red blood of Jesus Christ to sprinkle us and cleanse us from To restore us. And points us to the great mercy of Jesus in in alleviating the misery of sinners. You know, from, from makeup, appearance, and the way one dresses to renovations of one's homes, we, we often take before and after photos. And it's interesting that we've recently renovated several areas of, of our home. And, and when we look at those pictures before and then we look at the actual renovations afterwards, we're just amazed at, at how, what a transformation has taken place uh, in, our, in our home. Well, we have I mean, the epitome of before and after comparison here in this text today. In the previous passage, Jesus gave the instructions in verse 35. Let us go to the other side. Let us go to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And we look at them being across the Sea of Galilee. Well, now they've arrived. They've landed. They've gotten through that storm. And they're on the eastern shore. Verse 1 says that, they, they, that Jesus set foot in the land of the Gerizines. And this region was part of a greater region called the Decapolis, which was a confederation of ten Greek 
city. So obviously this is Gentile territory. Likely the town where this event took place is Crusha, which is a town that has cliffs and tombs and, and that would fit the context of this particular story. We, we must see, though, the significance of Jesus stepping into Gentile territory, land that was viewed by the Jews as unclean, like, like Samaria, and the fact that there were a, a relatively large herd of pigs there just simply points to the fact that this was indeed non-Jewish land. It was very common to see herds of pigs in the Decapolis. And to the Jew, Jesus had journeyed to truly the other side of the tracks, the really bad part of town, no doubt. And once again, our Lord demonstrates that his messianic work is to the nations. It is to the unclean. It is to the sinner. It is to the Decapolis and beyond. In verse 6, the demonized man saw Jesus from afar, ran to Jesus, and he fell down before him. We don't really know why the man fell down before him. It could be that the man simply humbled himself, hoping Jesus would deal with with these many demons in him. It could be that in, actually, in actuality the demons were in control of him. And as this man came before the true authority, they couldn't do anything other than control this man to fall down before the mighty authority of Jesus. We don't know, but what we do know is that they addressed Jesus rightly. This, these demons through this man addressed Jesus as the Son of the Most High God. But as we've said before, when these demons were rightly naming Jesus, identifying Jesus, they were probably trying to gain power over him by using his name. And in fact, we see that this man, in effect, commanded Jesus not to torment them. That's what the word adjure means in the text but obviously these demons this man had no authority over Jesus the, the, the text seems to indicate that Jesus had been commanding these evil spirits to leave this man but they had not obeyed that's in verse 8 and so our Lord asked the name of this chief demon verse 9 his name was Legion this a legion would be a Roman military unit that would be composed of about 6,000 soldiers. Now, we shouldn't think that the text is saying there were 6,000 demons inhabiting this man. It's indicating there were many demons inside this man. It's hard for us to even imagine that. But again, it points to how, how horrifically the image of God had been defaced in this particular individual. And this, this chief demon, Legion, begged Jesus not to send them out of the country. I believe that means to cast them in the abyss. In verse 10, the demons begged Jesus to allow them to enter this great herd of pigs that was, that were, was on the hillside. Some 2,000 pigs there, verses 11 and 12. And Jesus permitted. He said, go, inhabit them. And as the demons inhabited those pigs, the whole herd ran down the hillside, cast themselves 
in the sea and they drowned, verse 13. And I think a point to be made here is that if the demons could not destroy an image bearer of God, they would at least attempt to destroy something God had created like a herd of pigs. And I want to make a point here is that Satan's agenda is death. Satan's agenda is to destroy the image of God in man, to destroy God's image bearers. We know his chief aim is to defeat Jesus. And the fact of the matter is, he has not defeated Jesus. That we find Jesus showed mercy to the man and the reality is, Satan is the one who is going to be ultimately destroyed. In fact, the fate of the pigs prefigures what is going to happen to Satan and all of his demons. They will ultimately one day be destroyed, and Jesus himself will cast Satan into the lake of fire, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10. Jesus showed mercy to this man and freed him from Satan's grip and restored in him the ability to function as an image bearer of God. This work of Jesus is foretold in Isaiah. One passage among many would be Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 7 where the servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus himself is foretold to, to work such that he would open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. The work of freedom, the work of restoration, the work of restoring sinners structurally in the image of God to function as an image bearer of God. The herdsmen who witnessed the event fled and told others in the city and countryside what had happened. We see that in verse 14. And they all came to see Jesus. And when they came to see Jesus, they also saw the formerly demonized man sitting there clothed in his right mind. And they feared. What did they fear? Perhaps it was just simply a fear of the unknown. How could this happen? How could somebody so grotesque now be in his right mind, sitting clothed, acting, looking normal? And the people who had witnessed the event began to explain what had happened to this man and, and to the pigs and perhaps relieved some of their fear. But what I want us to see, the, the two responses to Jesus in, in this text, the herdsmen and the townspeople responded, how? They begged Jesus to go. Look at verses 15 and 17. Now, we might understand that the herdsmen begged Jesus to go because, I mean, 2,000 pigs, that affects the bottom line. And so maybe there is an economic concern here. Maybe they just simply didn't want Jesus to meddle in their lives. They like life the way it is. But I think the more important thing for us here is to, is to consider that isn't their response, the response of every person who has not experienced the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, go. And maybe you sit, you're sitting here today and you're uncomfortable hearing about Jesus. 
for those who are still in their sin, who are still in the estate of sin and misery, the response to Jesus is often, go. I don't want you. I don't want you in my life. I don't want to hear anything about you. But then look at the man who was freed by Jesus. How did he respond? Quite differently. He said, Jesus, I want to go with you. I want to get in that boat. You may say, well, Jesus, you know, a disciple does leave everything and go and follow Jesus. And what does this man have to leave? The tombs? But that's beside the point. The fact of the matter is, this man had been so dramatically changed and transformed by Jesus, he wanted to be with Jesus. And I would commend to you, that's the response of someone who's experienced the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, are you uncomfortable with Jesus being around? This may indicate that you are a believer who has fallen into sin and is unrepentant. And that uncomfortableness being around Jesus may be what is being used to drive you to repentance and praise God for that. But, if, but those who are uncomfortable being around Jesus, it may indicate that you're like the townspeople and the herdsmen who didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. Go, Jesus. We don't want your meddling in our affairs. One who hasn't received the mercy of God. We find in this story a, a dramatic before and after depiction. And the one thing that it was the change agent was Jesus, his mercy in this man's life. Have you experienced the transforming mercy of Jesus? Are you uncomfortable with being around Jesus? If you are uncomfortable and you have not experienced his mercy, then would you consider the before and after of this man and consider asking Jesus to so transform you? And if you are a believer, consider we were that man and consider the transforming work that Jesus has done in my life and your life. And how should that operate? Third, this passage points to the great mission of those redeemed. You know, <laughs> I don't know about you, but even this morning I, I heard a testimonial about, about some food. If you eat this, it'll just change your life. And maybe it's a pill. Maybe it's an exercise. Maybe it's, it, it, it's, it's some uh, thing that, some product that you might buy. You know, it's that spray that'll make sure that nothing ever leaks again. And that's a life changer, isn't it? I mean, we're just inundated with advertisement that feature people giving testimonials about these great life-changing things. How much more should we give testimonials to the one thing that has changed our lives eternally, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that really is what this passage is leading us to consider. Jesus so profoundly taking an image bearer of God that, that, that cannot function as an image bearer and so radically changing them that they're able not only to have their sins forgiven, but also live and function as an image bearer of God to worship God, to work for God, to produce 
and to tell others about the great and glorious gospel message. The newly transformed man wanted to go with Jesus, but Jesus said, no, I want you to go to your town. I want you to go to your family. Go to those who live in the town. Go to the countryside. Go to the Decapolis. And I want you to tell, in verse 20, to tell them all that I have done for you, to tell them about the mercy that I have shown you. And one lesson from this text is that our mission as the redeemed, as those who have been radically transformed by Jesus, who have literally been brought out of darkness into the light, out of death into life, our mission is to tell others of all that Jesus has done for us, to declare his mercy to those around us. This past week in men's Bible study, Pastor Derek led us through a study of Joshua 4, and there Joshua commanded 12 Israelites from the 12 tribes of Israel to go and take stones from the, the dry bed of the River Jordan, and eventually those stones were erected at Gilgal as a memorial, as a testimonial that when future generations might ask, hey, Dad, what's that pile of rocks for? They might say, hey, listen, son, listen, daughter, this is the great and wondrous thing that God did. He separated the waters of the Jordan like he did the Red Sea, and the people of Israel walked across on dry ground. He fulfilled his covenant promise to us. And in a very real sense, Jesus was telling this formerly demonized man to go and be a memorial, a living memorial stone to declare what Jesus had done. And that's what we're called to do as well. Earlier we discussed what sin had done in marring the image of God. Well, let's look at what Jesus has done. We've seen what Jesus has done. And Paul summarizes what Jesus has done in Colossians 1, 12 through 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The, the lesson of this text, like the transformed man in this passage, is, is our mission to go tell them. We, we saw this reflected in the psalm that Josh read earlier, Psalm 66, verse 3, say to God, awesome are your deeds. Testify to God about his greatness. And then, verse 5, come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. Then verse 16, come and hear. I, I love verse 16. Come and hear, all you who fear God. I will tell you what God has done for my soul. What has God done for your soul? What God has done for your soul is what Jesus did in this man's life. The transformation really is as radical when we are brought out of darkness into light by Jesus' mercy. And then we might ask, tell who? Another lesson is we're to tell those and begin with those closest to us at home, family, friends, town and country. In the men's Bible study, Derek really emphasized, fathers, tell your children. Mothers, tell your children. Make sure they know of all that Jesus has done. Tell your neighbors. Tell people at work. 
you know, we, we may think that God is calling us to the foreign field, and, and I've actually spoken with people in charge of missions that have interviewed mission, people wanting to go to the mission field, and, and they're asked, are you telling people where you live about Jesus, and they say no, and then the, then the response is, what makes you think that you're going to tell people about Jesus there if you're not telling people about Jesus here? And so we're about to, we are to be about the business of telling others of all that Jesus has done. We look at the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19. As you go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. The command is not go, the command is make disciples. And the better way to understand Matthew 28, 19 is this, as you go, as you go about your life, as you go about your life in your family, as you go about your life in your neighborhood, as you go about your life at work, as you go about your life and whatever you're doing, be about the business of making disciples. And what is the first step in making a disciple? It is telling others about all that Jesus has done in our lives, evangelism. Begin with your family. Expand to your neighbors. Expand to your colleagues. Tell others about Jesus. That should be something that we are compelled to do. And there's one more lesson, is that this activity of telling others about Jesus actually multiplies. Like the compounding of interest in an investment, so is the compounding of the gospel message that goes forth. It just spreads and multiplies. This event in this text prefigures Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Jesus told his disciples before he ascended that they would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the othermost part of the world. And certainly the Decapolis, at least in their day, was pretty close to the outermost part of the world, <laughs> maybe the end of the world. And the word witness here is rooted in the idea of confirming, like a witness on a stand, confirming, yeah, the, the, that's what happened. And I would commend to you that, that, that witnessing the gospel is chiefly, primarily a verbal thing. Yeah, we should live it out, no doubt, but The necessity is on speaking, and that's what the emphasis of this text is. That's what the emphasis of Acts 1-8. It is, it is confirming the good news of the gospel, what Jesus has done by telling others of his mercy for sinners. And so Jesus told this man to go and confirm by telling others about the mercy he had received. He told his friends, or I don't know if you had any friends, being, being this demon-possessed man, but he told the people in the town, and he went about to the countryside, and he went about to the Decapolis, and the word spread, and others began to tell, and the word spread, and others began to tell, and we see this multiplication of the gospel going forth to the extent that everyone marveled at what the Lord had done in this one man's life. I'll tell you a story about Am I on, Jim? About an Arthur Murray dancing school instructor who was rising to the height of his profession as a dancing school instructor. And one day he just happened upon a radio broadcast of this preacher 
The preacher's name was Dr. Donald J. Barnhouse. He happened to be the pastor of 10th Street Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And Dr. Barnhouse was declaring all that Jesus has done for sinners. And this dancing instructor, and he was challenged by the claims of Christ. And the one question that haunted him was, where will I spend eternity? One man preaching, one man hearing, God using one sermon in this dancing instructor's life, not only and chiefly convert him to Christ, but this man went to seminary. He became a pastor, a PCA pastor, Dr. D. James Kennedy. And think of the D. James Kennedy. Think of the impact one sermon by, quote, happenstance on the radio, one man listening, converted, becomes a pastor, impacted thousands with his sermons over the years, developed an evangelism training course called Evangelism Explosion, not only impacting, not only, dec- not only telling others all that Jesus had done through his, for him by preaching the glorious gospel, but in equipping others to do the same. Think of the thousands of people that have been impacted because one man preached one sermon, and by God's sovereign grace, one man heard that sermon, and it spread, and it spread. That's what God does. Go tell them. Yeah, we show them. The change is obvious in a believer. But that's not the necessary thing. The necessary thing is go tell them. I will never have the impact of D. James Kennedy and you won't either. And that is not important. What is important is faithfulness to go tell. Preach the gospel all the time. It's not what St. Francis said. It's not what the Bible teaches (laughs) use my people of all that I have done for him and it will spread like wildfire. We tell, we leave the impact house and Dr. Kennedy or this of what God does in just one event, one declaring of the gospel, one hearing of the gospel, and then multiplying that many times over. And that's what he's doing in the life of his people today. We may think that what we say to that person is never going to make a difference. And it very well may be what God uses to transform a dead sinner incapable of functioning as an image bearer of God to one who is able to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Go tell them. Let us pray.
Father in heaven, we have a heart for the lost. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd be pleased to give us the boldness and the courage to, to tell of all the wonderful things that Jesus has done for us. Lord, not only may our lives declare that and how we live, but more importantly, may our words speak much of Jesus. And we pray and ask this in his name. Amen.